Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today we have another amazing Marvel triple header for you. We're going to kick things off with Sword Number 8 by Al Ewing, which more or less served as a Storm solo story before taking a look at the digital space of Marvel Unlimited for the pages of X-Men Unlimited number 1 through 4. One of Jonathan Hickman's final stories before his Inferno arc sees him depart X-Men for some time. From there, we're going to take a look at Reptile Number 4, the final issue of Terry Bloss's and Edith Balam's incredible four-issue miniseries highlighting Mexican culture in Super Heroics. But before we can get to any of that, it was just recently International Podcasters Day, and we just had the third anniversary of X's for Podcasts, and I would feel remiss if I didn't say something about the incredible journey that this show has been on and the incredible journey it's taken me on. When we started this show, it was originally just a project for myself and some of my friends to cover our favorite 70s comics and to get to share stories that we'd never gotten a chance to discuss. It was myself and Jonah taking a look at the pages of Uncanny X-Men following Giant Size X-Men number one. Kyle and I had started out on The Champions, which ended, so we started to take a look at The Defenders. Kevo and I were covering Captain Britain, and as the books continued, we brought in more voices, like Mikey for Alpha Flight. Once we hit New Mutants, we knew that we needed a few more voices to come on and that's when Dylan and Regina joined our crew for an awesome six months and together the main six members of the team transitioned over to covering the Hoxpox era and the incredible era of mutant domination on Krakoa and at that point we realized that we weren't really looking to cover the 70s stuff as much anymore we really wanted to look forward to the bright new future of Krakoa and the show retooled a bit we brought on a ton of new voices and for the last 150 episodes we have had the pleasure of bringing you a roundtable, diverse, inclusive discussion, taking a look at many facets of the entire X-Men line, which has now become most of the Marvel line, a ton of the Marvel magic, so much Marvel space. And I want to personally thank everyone who's been a part of this project at any stage of the game for all of their incredible contributions and for every wonderful thing they've given. I want to thank Kevo every single week and every single episode for making our beautiful art and videos and making sure sure this thing runs exactly the way it's supposed to. An enormous amount of thanks to Nathan, without whom I could not executive produce this show, and it just could not happen each week. And just a huge thanks to everyone who has been a part of this show as either a regular or semi-regular contributor. Big thank you to Jonah, Kyle, Kevo, Maddie, Mikey, Dylan, Regina, Nathan, Josh, Arturo, Rod, Tori, Drew, Robbie, Blake, Evelyn, Juancho, Broadway, Steve, Dante, Raven, Juan, Dan, Matthew Scott, Dr. Matthew. We've had way too many fucking Matthews. Jeez. But every single one of you has added something incredible, unforgettable, one of a kind to this show. And I am so proud to have produced a show that every one of your voices contributed to. And we would all be a lot worse for every one of you having not been part of this. Thank you guys for three amazing years. On to sword number eight. Al Ewing paints an incredible picture of the 
passionate, powerful, complex woman that Storm is. Now, I know there was a lot of discussion about the art online, and honestly, we did also have some things to say about the art, but something that we came back to was that we could tell that the art was always well-intentioned, and perhaps there was something along the way that caused perhaps the disconnect of what we saw from what we could tell was intended in the work. The discussion here is so varied and so complex, and we have such a great time. We hope you guys enjoy it just as much as we did. And if you guys enjoy what you've heard for the last three years and 200 plus episodes, then we hope you guys would like what you see. So don't forget to give us a subscribe over on YouTube, Twitter, and Patreon at X is for Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another segment of X is for Podcast, where we cover comics, marvels, mutants, and magics week after week. I am Nathan. You can find me online at DazzlerAOA on Twitter and Instagram. Hey everybody, I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N. And hi, I'm Raven, aka Dame Red Bento. Come find me on Twitter and Instagram. Hello, it's me, uh, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at Howdy Duda. That's H O W D Y D U D A. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. And we hope you survive this experience. Just like Storm, who survived multiple challenges, we saw her go through three, uh, in just in this issue alone. And it's like, damn, girl, give her like Wait, a three-minute break. The challenge of surviving the art, right? That was the challenge. And I guess that means we're covering Sword Eight right now. Sword Eight is brought to us by Al Ewing is the writer. We. Villanova as the artist, Fernando Cifuentes of Photo Bunker Studios as color art, BC's Ariana Mayer as the letterer and production. All right, so let's get the, let's talk about the elephant in the room, right? We already kind of mentioned it a second before. We've got a fill-in artist for this issue, and it's, the art is a little distracting for me in this issue. Where are y'all at with the art issue for this? Did y'all not like the art? <laughs> I liked it, but I seem to be the only person among the people I know. Like, some of the art was well done, and then some of it just really fell apart. Yeah, I like the I liked the style. I thought it was really expressive. It made Tarn look super fucking creepy. Storm could not keep a singular shape to her face. And it it honestly felt at times that they were almost drawing a woman of color from either bad reference or memory. It did feel like Storm was a different person throughout the issue, that's for sure. I, I felt like it was a cartoonier style. I didn't think it was supposed to be more photorealistic. And I guess maybe that sometimes works more for me than it does for other people. But yeah, you're right. The Storm looks like five different people. And, you know, it actually reminds me of another Storm story a number of years ago now, which just makes me feel kind of weird 20 years ago or so chris claremont did a story called storm the arena and storm the arena was a story in which storm was pitted in trials against a being mask who could deform her into looking like a muck monster and that's kind of what we got here again storm in an arena trial being transformed into a muck monster and everybody being kind of like but now you're ugly so don't you feel too ugly to be a fighting warrior lady and she's like nah because i'm pretty inside let's see what your insides look like you know what i mean and mm -hmm. so the thing about that issue that arc storm the arena is the first issue is so fucking beautiful you guys i cannot tell you how beautiful issue one of storm the arena is because issue one of storm the arena was drawn as the first 20 or 30 pages of a 160 page graphic novel and then some shit got shifted around <laughs> and the next thing you know 
is huh it's a four-part mini and they're kind of rushing it together and by issue four it's the ugliest thing you've ever seen (laughs) but it's still a beautiful story with beautiful things in mind that was attempted beautifully and i think there is a lot of really passionately powerful imagery to mine from this issue there's a lot of beautiful material in this issue there's a lot of really excellent work in setting up the visuality of this issue but i think what happened was something that both Raven and Steve, you guys said beautifully right away, the the multitude of women contained in Storm is occasionally visually compromising because Storm was, you know, created in a time where thought, you know, people thought this was a good idea, but she is a black woman with Asian features and white features. And like, that's not actually a good idea. She, if she's a black woman, she should be a black woman, but it's beautiful mm-hmm. that they wanted her to be of the earth. But that is why here we have 80 different storms in two panels. And then the other part of it that's kind of a problem for me at times is because Tarn and the grotesquery are so beautifully elevated here. I thought Tarn was like the high point of the art there. Exactly, because he is so elevated here. I can see where this was the right choice for a Tarn issue and a gross, creepy arena issue, but not an issue for Storm being showcased as a powerful figure because we don't see Doom shown disfigured. Doom is disfigured and we go out of our way not to show it, but we kind of revel in making beautiful women look ugly as like a point of contrast in culture. And I have a problem with that. So this just wasn't my favorite in general. I think you're absolutely right about that, Nico. And I think I've just realized what what the difference is for me is that despite being somewhat well known as a storm stand on the internet um for me this issue was more of a tarn issue than a storm issue and i I absolutely can see why like if you're focusing on the art that is not tarn centric if you're focusing on the story that is not tarn centric this is exactly what you said this is a retread of stuff that we've seen possibly better done often in the past it also is a retread of the callisto fight like in almost every detail yep the callisto fight beget the arena which beget sword number eight with that arena art from extreme x-men i i have to love it for my own reasons uh like personally i loved the fact that it all ended with storm and callisto and yukio in a bathtub together and with callisto's tentacles intertwined around everybody i'm like mm-hmm, you know we are not putting that. tarn in a freaking can we have like hot sexy times with tarn because no, like no, i just want to rub those tendrils like oh my God, if tarn is like fucker. i'm a boss in the board Room, but a sub <laughs> in the sex yeah, if that can be what I get out of him. I don't really want Tarn anywhere around Storm again. It really freaked me out when he did a Cronenberg on her body. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for how this script is kind of like a greatest hits and like a clip show sort of of Storm stories and for why that doesn't work for a lot of people. For sure, I think one of the things that like what thrilled me when I first read this issue is like, I don't like the attempts constantly to knock storm down a peg, like to depower constantly and like make her less than I I don't like any of that. I think it's, I think it bespeaks uh, a a wider problem, but like Mm -hmm. a a wider problem, I should say, but the, (laughs) 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 I mean, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. I love this kind of body horror that I really enjoyed in uh, Mortal Hulk. It's one of the things I love about Dupe. It's that sort of 
disconnect from reality, that, that nightmare. I, I, I definitely get what you mean. Yeah, I, I mean, I enjoy Cronenberg movies. You know, I, I really enjoy that kind of style of uh, gross body horror. And so this really freaked me out because Storm is a character I'd never want that to happen to, very specifically. And so I was torn between being mad at it and like also being like, well, Storm needs strong challenges on this new planet. And so I don't know. In the moment, for me, it was like a shocking, thrilling thing, and I was desperate for her to be put back, and I, I honestly kind of don't believe that Tarn would do that, but I guess he would. <laughs> oh, Tarn would totally Like any mask <laughs> issue, they have to be put back at the end of the issue, because there's no way, unless you're Jean Grey, and you just get your tentacles for, like, months. <laughs> months. It's, it, I, I absolutely agree with you on this. It felt like, oh, look, Storm is going to be in a knife fight yet again yeah, because yeah. she's been depowered yet yeah, yeah. again for the how many of time in just a few months? Like, and check it out. Now she got flyaways. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, like, I knew she was going to get through it okay because she's Storm and she's a highly skilled, even without her powers, person. But it's like, do we have to constantly do this to a black woman? <laughs> Tell me uh, any white woman that they have done this to. Like, is Jean Grey getting shut down every other moment? Nah, she just gets killed. Uh, by her own volition, <laughs> Jean does get shut down because she likes to faint and she wants Scott to say Like, somebody just needs to stuff her pockets with candy just to keep the blood sugar up. <laughs> I don't. I don't want Storm to go. Scott, Scott, is <laughs> trying to tell me Never. that the actual power of the Emcron crystal is it cures Jean Grey's diabetes? Because if you're about to tell me that Jean Grey could just stop dying if she would monitor her fucking blood sugar. Get me a Bob Quinn. I need a mutant that produces candy and insulin stat. Okay, so Bob Quinn is just like the guy who makes mutants that do stuff now, right? That's like... <laughs> like, no offense against Bob Quinn, an artist that I truly love, but it's funny how everybody's like, well, I need a thing to come out of a mutant, so let me call him Bob Quinn. <laughs> Bob Quinn, can you make magical insulin mutants? Thank you! That's, like, an, you know, that's, that's an amazing invitation to have. Uh, Codename Pop Rocks. <laughs> oh my god, no, and like, that's that's one of the things I really love about Krakoa. There actually is room for a mutant whose ability is, yeah, I have the power to help the endocrine system in the body and I can manipulate people's endocrine levels and could actually like, that's just the magic of Krakoa. I could read a book about that person and it would be a medical office book. And you know what? Marvel, let's talk about how x Corps didn't go the way anybody expected. <laughs> let's do ex-medical and they set up in hell's kitchen and jamie madrox is all of the receptionists trying to redress their bookings and there's cecilia reyes and uh um, endocringe and endocringe has the power to manipulate endocrine levels and like marvel this is the new shit call me <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of office dating going on in it yes very slice and of cecilia life wants nothing seen. to do with it she's it's like, like bones <laughs> Jamie's the one doing all the dating, sometimes dating himself. Right. How do I it's this just Grey's Anatomy. In terms of the scale of monster fuckeriness of Tarn, I would say he's like mid-tier because he kind of like vaguely looks like Azora from Legend of Zelda, like the fish people. Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's definitely wow. like I, I say mid tier because it's like definitely not like a human that just has monster features. Like that's like the easiest tier that I think monster fuckery gets to, and then you get to like the big <laughs> ones of like Godzilla and like King Kong. Like th- those, those are or, like the, uh, the monster from like the Black Lagoon. That's oh, like high tier. <laughs> um, so like I would say Tarn's around the mid tier. So you're like he's like a five or six in monster fuckery, but not like a like yeah, a like like instead of like it's like junior varsity. <laughs> it's not like <laughs> you're not like at the you're not like varsity level, but you're like you're still doing stuff that other like the average person probably wouldn't. Oh no, and, that is definitely varsity level, and it's it's not just the look; <laughs> it's his whole like attitude and what he can do to other people. He is a complete monster. Yeah. So yeah, what you're saying, he's a pain sub. Um, I got the chance to talk about Tarn recently as parallel to Sinister, and I think this issue, for me, both the art and the writing really elevated that Sinister comparison in a huge way, because this this Tarn is both the Sinister from, like, Inferno days, the original Inferno days, and also the Sinister from today's Inferno. Like, it's great. Bridging the gap between the two Sinisters and one Tarn character, that's very new, and it feels it feels great. So, wait, wait, you're saying that the Tarn and Sinister Sinister fight and Hellions had a lot of sexual tension, and that like Sinister so just wanted much. to fuck him well, because he I'm was like sure so much tension. Anything Sinister does has sexual <laughs> and Sinister wishes he can rewrite people's DNA with a, a thought. Oh, he yeah. wishes Tarn um, is like a more competent Sinister. Yeah, I mean, if Solemn is to Wolverine, what Tarn is to Sinister, then I think that's I think that's where I'm going with this in a lot of ways. Yeah. I love it. Or is love Tarn it. to Storm? Like, is that oh, what they're kind of trying no. to set up here? Are they trying to? I hope she's no. just put him down and he's gonna go away and bother somebody else. He came within millimeters of having his heart pierced. I'm pretty sure he's gonna learn. Honestly, I was surprised to find that Tarn might even only have one heart. That's I right. just I just assumed he had at least three or something going. On. I mean, hell, Marrow has two. Why doesn't Tarn? Yeah, every Klingon. Tarn's got is. some kind of weird baby in a test tube motherfucker of a horcrux <laughs> sitting under some godforsaken crash rock on some <laughs> forgotten planet. Yeah, and he's just yeah. sitting there, and it's like, my baby, it's where some of my youth is. That one has a teddy bear and everything. It's like a little teddy bear. <laughs> I love your Tarn. <laughs> Cushay the Deathless, Tarn the Uncaring. Same character. I um, love that that's where you and I can't stop going, Steve. I'm so sorry, I keep cutting you off. Yeah, yeah Tarn's just got a needle in an egg and a rabbit in a duck somewhere. To circle back a bit, while I'm not familiar with the uh, arena run of Extreme X-Men, I am familiar with Storm's first interactions with the Morlocks, even down to the dagger being thrown at her that she later uses as the weapon. Seriously. I really enjoyed what the story was doing and setting up that Storm A, is a lot more important than maybe other Coens and other mutants that we're more familiar with, the more popular mutants are, and B, is a lot more powerful in regards to everything about her besides just her power set. But I don't know if the, I think the passenger which is what we're trying to get at of Storm being much more important and much more valuable to both Krakoa and Arako, though were important and great, but the vehicle of this constant arena fighting and this constant struggle where her cousins don't really respect her, I don't know if that's the proper vehicle for what the story should do, only because we've seen it before and while putting Storm in stuff that's something that's familiar is great, Storm's been a character that's been around for over... 40 years at this point, you can give her a new story. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to get some different Storm stories. Uh, I like knives. I think knives are cool. I think a lady with a lot of knives is even cooler. But, like, yeah, this has been done to death in the Krakoan era. It's kind of crazy to even hear myself saying that, because I loved it when it first came back. 
Well, and I think to me, what's what's chafing me is the black woman always has to get into hand to hand combat, like the most violent and dangerous combat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet we don't see this kind of up close need for constant violence from other more European presenting characters. You know, just say Emma Frost. Yeah, Yeah. like I'm hearing you say it, and my first thought is why, like, and I mean this with absolutely the tongue in cheek aggression that you know we're (laughs) intending, but like, I'm shocked that Storm's never been like, "Fuck, time to take the lightning bolt earrings off," and like. on at it i'm surprised she's never been like get me Callisto. she's got to protect my extensions you know what i mean like there is something where they really do make storm tussle in a way that they would never deign to make a lot of the other women tussle even Mm -hmm. though those women have much more extremely physical power sets rogue Mm -hmm. as a as a rule throws someone like and don't get me wrong rogue's got the strength to throw someone but rogue just kind of throws you away and that's the Mm -hmm. end of it storm the other thing and this is kind of a weird analogy and i don't mean it this way but there is something to be said about a number of storms presenting abilities being likened to unfortunate black stereotypes that i don't Mm -hmm. care for number one she's an expert thief number two there is something to be said about the lightning bang that is also kind of a gun flash that i don't love there is something to be said for the the fact that as Raven you just pointed out she's always being forced into hand-to-hand combat there are ways in which we sort of de-elevate Storm by forgetting that even if she's the exception to many tropes applying those same tropes to her still is the same problem that we've put on characters of color this whole time mm-hmm. yeah. the thing that really struck me about this with that particular issue is in this setting it does make sense Arako is a brutal planet it's a brutal place so Storm has to step up to match that brutality but like you were saying raven it is it does get a little tired that it always has to be storm to do this and it always has to be storm has to be the one who steps up and brings that level of brutality when they don't make gene gray do that they don't make emma frost do that they don't make <laughs> knows lorna dane couldn't do that kind of hand-to-hand kind of combat no but i mean like remember her first fight with the lava monster that was brutal she just she just came down and just exhaled on his ass and went excuse me so um now that you've been frozen into your place, do you yield or do I need to like murder you? Because it can go either way. I'm like, oh shit, I'm scared. I'm that was scared. Really I love this. That's what I was kind of hoping for between her and Tarn. Like at least have a couple of like blows back and forth. Like rain some freaking icicles on his ass. Hit him a couple times with some lightning or like a, some really good hard blast or something. And then have him get desperate a little bit and resort to turning off her power and instead it's like oh nope your power's off oh nope i've grotesque you it's like it was too easy yeah that was that yeah, was right. beautifully done how she took out the penis flattener from the bad place <laughs> and just you know just took him out by using a more passive ability of hers the ability to create uh, extreme cold which out of all of her abilities definitely is more passive to do that we haven't questioned storm being the central focus of a team issue because we never would. But, you know, you were saying, you know, Lorna would never be put into these hand-to-hand combat situations. Well, it's because Lorna's got a coffee in one hand and the other hand is her trying to pry the door open to get back into the fucking book this year. So, yeah. like, if Lorna did get a one-shot issue about her, we would be like, it's the Lorna issue of 2017! Like, <laughs> it would be such a big deal. 
But Storm can lead an issue of a book called X-Men, of a book called Sword, of a book called New Mutants, of a book, like, there is no book that Storm couldn't just walk into and be the main character of for that month that we would challenge it. Except apparently Marauders. How does everybody feel about the reconceptualization of Sword from its massive cast to the Storm feature that we've really been looking for since she really didn't have that focus in Marauders? So, like, I personally, on one hand, agree that it's great to have Storm features and that she really, in Marauders, was very underserved. Do we feel, though, that by her taking over Sword, because ever since she's came on she's really she really has been the main focus of sword do we feel that we sort of lost something out on the other special characters that were focused on before i did kind of almost forget that we weren't showing up today to talk about storm eight <laughs> that's not a knock against this book that's a really great thing i love it I would, I would like to see more of taki and the others every once in a while i do feel like some of them got really lost in the shuffle like they do show up but it's hard to keep in mind that we're only on like issue eight of this book because you know it's been drawn into so many crossovers and it's kind of, you know, had like a little bit longer between issues sometimes. It feels like we're a lot further in than we are, really. Yeah, I would like to see more of the like sword staff come back into focus but like having storm lead the book absolutely what i want from this book i love it we went from king in black to hellfire gala to last annihilation in like four issues now we're now we're just back into a non-event book so yeah like, right you know now. the next one's gonna be in inferno yeah well and let's not forget this one this book even spawned out of two fucking crossovers <laughs> yeah. yeah it was crossovers from the beginning the whole way down yeah, this really is X marks the spot for space. Like it's just a giant space X. It's number one. It's a giant penis floating in space. Number two, they even went ahead and made balls, Earth and Mars. So like they've got what they need. But like the Sword Station really has been a point of intersection for the X books this entire time. So what do we think about the, maybe not revelations, but the more focus on the Iraqi council? Do we like the fact that the Iraqi council has more of set roles than say the Krakoan council does? And like, do we have a favorite role so far out of it? I'm of the mindset that the more you define something, the more likely you are to make it less cool right like the minute you start applying rules to something the limitlessness of of possibility kind of becomes inhibited and so i'm not saying that by defining Araco, you're making it less magical to me but in many ways i feel like the things i've dreamt up for Araco are greater than the things that Araco can deliver it's not that this wasn't interesting but like it, it did maybe feel like making me read a lot of words that i would have just as much enjoyed continuing to imagine See, but it makes sense that they would have such a strict and rigid set of rules for their council because they've been doing this shit for thousands of years. Yeah, it makes sense that Iska laughed at them when they were like, oh, you've got a little quiet council for babies, huh? That's <laughs> <laughs> right? oh. like it's so good. Right. The Quiet Council is the Muppet Babies of Araco's Muppet Show. <laughs> the Quiet Babies of Araco. <laughs> quiet Council. Xavier yep. just comes in and he's all very <laughs> Magneti. And like everybody just understands that Xavier is Miss Piggy and Magneto is Kermit the Frog. And he's just sitting there oh, in the helmet no. making the face directly at the camera. 
Apaka Rolf comes in and he's just like mutants on piano. Apaka Rolf, Kate though, Kate Kate's Gonzo, right? Kate would be Gonzo, oh, she's, right? She absolutely. Fozzie is. Crawler. Fozzie no, Crawler. Oh, see, I was thinking waka, like waka, bam. I was thinking Gonzo Crawler and Logan, like Fozzie Logan. But Logan's not on the Quiet Council. Who, who are those no, two? Old he men? sits there with the fucking propeller. Who are the two old men? Walter and Walter Statler. Statler. Oh. Walter and Statler. Thank you. That's sinister and exodus that's all oh my god <laughs> oh my god is mystique janice yes i just want my wife back man <laughs> just let me make jazz also wolverine is monster <laughs> animal. 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 Yeah, totally. animal i, I can't i can't imagine monster. anything else this is Real this is the story i never knew i needed yeah and, you know, it's still just storm though it's Kinda just good. straight the fuck up storm and muppet <laughs> yes just big adult human storm. <laughs> She's Nanny. Um, oh my god. Oh no. Is forget me. Is forget me that's not what I guess. Oh. Hey you guys. I'm uh, from a different project. Uh, <laughs> Don't forget me. Not. Um. Um. Wow. Um. To, to, ahead, to, to this. Uh, it makes much more sense for this group to have a lot more specialized roles. Because I think, as we've seen and as we talked about through the Ten of Swords event and so on and so forth afterwards in the aftermath of what happened, the Iraqi mutants are kind of on another level comparative to the Krakoan mutants. And I, it's even when they were terraforming Mars and you looked at the three Iraqi mutants that they used to help terraform Mars between Sabrina, which is, you know, boyfriend material we love him mm-hmm. silo and the wet daddy we stan him the, the wet daddy axolotl <laughs> namor is over here looking real salty just going you have no idea how hard it was to be taken seriously with ankle wings <laughs> i don't know why but in my head namor is officially will arnett and i just need everyone to be cool with it. Illusions. <laughs> Blondes. But I, uh, I will give credit. We actually have a design and face for Lotus logo now. Yeah, Lotus Logos. Yeah, Aura Serata, the witness, is the only person we do not have a design slash face for or know anything else about them. But apparently they're the lackey for Xylo to write down everything because it's his job to be the historian, but he's not writing anything down. Yeah, he looks like he doesn't... Why does Ludus logo look like he's from Avatar? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goddamn, you're not wrong. Did you guys feel like the art really shown in these great ring scenes? I felt like this was, like, the highlights for me. And not just because of Tarn's weird facial expressions, but Xylo looks really good here. I thought Lactuka looks nice. Lactuka is my favorite. I I think the artist does a great job drawing the more monster-esque features Mm -hmm. of the great ring. So that that really did stand out. Cifuentes on color art, man. Like, I think that that is what really ties it together for me like maybe i might have been beguiled by these pencils but i think that the i think that the colors are really the standout the colors help tell so much the color especially on tarn when tarn's bleeding out from the knife that storm <laughs> yeah. almost put through his heart that was good that was beautiful. yeah i like his purple lips it's weird like like his viscera is like purplish looks like ariana really had fun moments with the lettering yeah <laughs> some of the really cool like lettering bubbles i love yeah. that shit now, it's going to sound silly, but I would absolutely still love the other side of this, like the Tarn side of this. This could be a Hellions issue. 
Yeah. <laughs> it would have been like the Shinobi issue of Marauders, which absolutely came to nothing. Great job there. But it would have been really interesting to see this a little bit more from Tarn's perspective, because like I imagine, you know, there's that thing where bad people frequently know they're bad. I don't know that Tarn really has that sort of understanding. I think Tarn is like, no, different set of morality for me. Look at me. I have face danglies. Honestly, Tarn, he, he doesn't care. That's what it he is. Doesn't. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine surrealism of experiencing all of this from Tarn's perspective would be a disorienting reimagining of the of the interaction. You know what I mean? It would be a really fascinating take. I think Tarn was just literally born without any sort of like conscious or empathy. So you think a Tarn was born, not made. Interesting. Yeah. I kind of went with like Gore, the God Butcher was kind of like there was a thing that was born, but that is not what was the monster. The monster was made. I kind of thought maybe Tarn was born, but the monster was made. Interesting that you Mm -hmm. see it differently. I really love that. Yeah, I, I definitely think that he was like, he was just born that way. Whereas like somebody like solemn i think was made yeah uh, hard agree can't wait to talk yeah. more about that later oh my god right <laughs> there was a moment that i loved the most before storm went on her greatest hearts tour where <laughs> storm is above Rocco slash mars and she's in her basically she's in her own private idaho she's out there just you know <laughs> <laughs> she brought idaho with her to mars <laughs> she's basically just up there you know owning all that she surveys and we see her descend upon this battle and i thought that was a really beautiful moment for the art and i thought colors worked really well there i thought uh seeing her in that seeing her in her out her regent outfit was amazing for that point but did you guys notice too also that we did get storm for the first time since the hellfire gala she switched back to her old black outfit in the end of the issue yes for a little bit she was i feel feel like that's somehow her casual outfit which doesn't make any sense (laughs) Storm's casual is like wearing almost nothing if not nothing well I'm glad that they didn't put her in almost nothing yet again because that's another trope that they are so so guilty of doing but I love the picture right behind her when they're when they're scanning her I squealed so hard at that little easter egg look at look at the picture behind Storm Mm -hmm. where it says later just underneath the word later look at the look at the she does have a picture of that second Genesis class right up there on the wall oh yeah yeah Mm -hmm. I really it was really nice to see that like she keeps that picture of her very first x-men class mm-hmm. I, I loved it although she has that everywhere she actually i think she had that in the children of the atom issues too when she's sipping her tea i don't know i can't remember but she loves that picture very specifically she loves it you know <laughs> i really want to comment on something kind of important that you know i'm so glad raven that you brought up that the x-men artists unfortunately for a period in time would overfocus on having Storm be kind of naked because that's something that we talked extensively about in our first handful of episodes of this show back when it was a completely different project and that's important to consider explicitly because we have people still listening now to those earliest episodes and commenting on it online and if nothing else i am sort of glad to see that we can trace the amount of growth that they're attempting you know what i mean like we did come at some stuff for being kind of clunk but we are seeing growth from old mistakes and that's kind of cool to get to be able to point out after two years 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and for for every bad trope that that we might think we see somewhere that that we're not, there is so much growth even within this book. If you look at Frenzy as a character, to have that character who at times during her first appearances was a really bad on a lot of the African American tropes, she's really grown as a character to become not only just a strong character but an ambassador to people, which is amazing considering that the angry young woman that we were first presented with. Yeah, uh, terrorist to ambassador arc is my favorite. Yeah, I do love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> About to say, I'm looking at you, Magneto, and Mystique, sort of, kind of. I mean, Mystique's ambassador to something. I have no idea what it is, but it kind of sounds like badass, and it kind of sounds like ambush, so I'm sure Mystique is involved. She's ambassador to the Inferno. Jonah came to me and was like, I kind of don't know how to say that I really didn't like the art on Sword. How do you guys feel when, like, you feel kind of bad that you don't like the thing? Like, you know, and it's really great that, Steve, you specifically stated that you don't really have a problem with the... No, I like this art, actually. I looked up the, uh, I looked up Villanova's other work. It seems to be Punisher, so I'll probably not read it. Sorry, man. But I was not offended by the art in this issue, necessarily. I I agree that it is not consistent, but I have uh, shown a predilection for the more cartoonier ex-artists in the past. So how do you guys feel when you feel like like you clunk with the rest of the universe? Because I'm going to say something real divisive, but you know what? There's that big reset coming after Inferno. I'm maybe not the biggest fan of Vita's New Mutes. I like it a lot, but it's just not the book that does it for me each month. I love Vita. I love New Mutants. I love Rod Race, but that's just not my book, you know? That's I, I kind of how I felt about the art on Sword here. I was kind of afraid that people were going to get kind of mad at me, but, you know... Like I've seen wor- much worse X-Heart, re- even recently, than this. Yeah. But. And I come at that harder. <laughs> <laughs> This art isn't bad, per se, for me. It's just not maybe my cup of tea for Storm as a character, I think, or certain characters. It is... It really fits, and it really fits a lot of the tone for it. It's really hard when you're trying to judge somebody else's artwork, personally. I, I, I feel that everybody's going to have differences. Like, Nico, you just said, New Mutants isn't your favorite run right now. To me, it's actually my favorite run going on right now. I love what they're doing with those characters and the title. I love the focus on new versus old. So that really kind of drives home the point where you've got to realize that, you know, just because it's not your cup of tea, that somebody else is going to like, love, or enjoy what this being presented to it and like we're best ex-friends all of our second third and fourth favorite books are all the same and that's like (laughs) the magic of the x-men i don't like to be necessarily like vocally mean about any artist's work uh in general but you know i'll I'll generally state when i when i don't like it like i've been vocal in the past about art that i just i could not get through a whole book of you know there's a couple series that i've had to drop because the art was terrible in my opinion and I i won't name them here right now but i've named them in the past and it's just like, I don't know, uh, a guest artist I can have a lot more tolerance for as well. My entire issue was it, it just divulged so far from the style of art that we are used to with Sword that oh, it sure. was it was a little yeah it was a little bit of a transition but also they could not seem to have any sort of consistency with storm's face i found that really distracting and problematic because you can literally pick a page and it will look like two different people drew her face but the art style itself stayed consistent so you know it's the same person but you're just like did, did she did you have a reference or did you not have a reference? And did you not reference your own art to 
try and keep the face continually, you know, similar. Yeah, I wonder visual why visual continuity. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think yes. it's only Storm in this issue? Like it is like it, like Frenzy looks the same throughout. Cora looks mm-hmm. the same throughout. Tarn looks the same throughout. Iska looks the same throughout. Why does Storm the only character who looks like five six different women? You know, it may Storm have been a... is the only one that really changed her uh, facial appearance ah, because Storm was a big Shaka Khan fan, and she is every woman. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say it could have been something that y- y'all were mentioning earlier where maybe this helps to show maybe this is the artist's artist interpretation of showing the many sides of storm that we go through in this issue we did see the cat's eye like it's it's interesting that we see the original costume during that shapeshifter battle whatever is going on there i don't know what's going on there i need to know more about that the imu screaming but like Mm -hmm. later in the issue and throughout the issue we do see storms like original cat eyes going on we see the white eyes it does seem like there's some kind of attempt, maybe it's unintentional, I don't know, to showcase different storms throughout the era, because we see that mohawk in the clouds at the end. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so mm-hmm. here's what I'll say. I have a very specific dichotomy of art I really like. I either like it very Mike Allred, which is, you know, my, my bread and butter. Oh, God, yeah. It's, it's yes. where my heart lives. Yeah. Or I like things very... Alex Maleev, very cross-hatched within an inch of my sanity. Very, everybody <laughs> looks like Clint Eastwood behind some blinds. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so I really like that. Those are my two extremes. And there's something about that sort of... There's something about this art that's very 90s indie, but there is like, you know, and 90s indie is to say a very broad spectrum idea, but there was sort of like that Jim Mafood 90s indie, that very, look at me, everything's angular, I love Humberto Ramos kind of art. And then there's also sort of like everyone's melting. Look at our puddles. Mike Drindberg used lines too strictly. And this is a little bit more in that second category. This ain't no Greg Gland art. Anybody who's saying this is the People have been telling me there's the worst X-Book art that they've ever seen. And like, I got friends who like Greg Gland, so no offense to them personally. I love them each individually, but like, no. Don't hate Greg Land when he's not tracing, but like I don't love him either. It's very like it's it's, it's very (laughs) hard because I'm like, uh, like he's not the worst art I've ever seen, but like that dark rot, dark dazzler. The anatomy is rough to the point of I I can't look at it. Lest we forget in Grant Morrison's new X Men, where I constantly told Nico, Jean looks like Xavier with a red wig on. (laughs) Emma with her melting boobs. Okay, around so hard to Frank Quietly's art, it's crazy. Yeah, I used to talk such idiotic shit about Frank Quietly's art. I used to so talk long. about Frank Quietly's art like I knew what I was talking about, yeah. and now the fool I look like. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, was, I was so stupid about that, but I will say this, that I that Igor Cordy art, is, that's so super rushed, like, I'm sure he would have done better if he had more time, but that's some terrible art. That's some that that art. tell Auntie Emma all about it moment, that is like, <laughs> that literally is what this storm image looks like. The yeah. tell Auntie Emma all about it, where Emma's fingers are melting into her hoo-ha it's really specific the one where she's got her legs open and she's like got her one hand in her mouth and like it's really bad i call that the one that emma's boobs are melting yeah yeah i i call it tell auntie emma all about it because that's the line of hideous dialogue there's a lot of there's a lot of dialogue i just do not agree with in new x-men but you know that's for another day yeah that's how i feel with that very last page with the mohawk who is that why that is that... was my least favorite like, panel like usually anytime you show storm with a mohawk i'm like fuck yeah my storm but no 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 
What? Seriously, just side note, I only have one line in all of New X-Men I don't like. It's when Bishop says to Sage, do that computer thing you do with your brain and send an email. <laughs> That's the worst line of dialogue in right. any comic book I've ever read. All right, wait, counterpoint. That's like one of the best lines in New X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the good dialogue in New X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> See, it takes all different strokes. <laughs> uh, divisive run in the weirdest ways. Yeah, for for me, anytime Hank opened his mouth and talked about how he was gay. Yep, Air that's, quote, that's the one. Yeah. That's the bad shit. Yeah. <laughs> all right, anyway, so back to Swords. So what are our final thoughts on this fantastically done storm? I mean, Sword issue. I have been persuaded that there are, like, maybe some objective artistic problems with the way that faces are handled, especially in this issue, mm-hmm. for sure. I think that it still wasn't something that really brought down my enjoyment of it. I, I think more I would like to see less of the retread of Storm's greatest hits, it is it it has reached a critical mass that uh, I think it's got to go. Yeah, she's done with that tour. She's I like, I want to hear more about the Great Ring, and I want Storm to lead the Sword books for sure. I'm happy in that direction. Give me Red Root. You know, I'm gonna bring up. You know, there's a it's a big thing for me right now. There's a Tori Amos album coming out at the end of the month, and uh, about a year ago, I brought up that John Hickman wrote a story in the Tori Amos comic book anthology for a a song called A Thousand Oceans. And the story was about two great warriors on two separate islands who were separated by a thousand oceans and the great amount of magic it would take to sail them home to each other. So I feel like I can sort of justifiably make this weird connection. Something that Tori does from time to time is she just stops playing some of people's favorite songs by her. Why? Because she's been playing these songs since 1991. She needs Mm. work. She just needs a hot minute. And you know what? It can come back into the repertoire later. But right now, it needs to come the fuck out. It's like every time I go to karaoke and somebody starts playing Piano Man and some part of me can't stop myself from screaming, how original! (laughs) See, for me, it's like, why does everybody do milkshake every time they do karaoke? But I don't know. I must be going to different karaoke bars than you. I go to like, I used to go to competitive karaoke. Like, I used to go to like people trying to win money karaoke. So it's not that I wasn't a fan of the art. I think there are plenty of panels that are really beautiful. Like if you're reading digitally, page 21, where Tarn is walking away from the fight saying that Storm might be Ameth. Like Storm looks absolutely gorgeous there. Like the pose, the way it's drawn, the coloring, everything about that looks absolutely gorgeous. I think I just got, I get a little particularly defensive and upset when it's the art is inconsistent, especially when the problem only really happens with women of color in comics. Not lest we forget that we had a problem with Storm's skin color earlier on in the Dawn of X. And it just, it just seems a problem bear repeating that I wish that we would, as a group and as people who consume comics and create comics, that we can be a little bit more diligent in recognizing when we make missteps and making sure we don't make those missteps because it really only happens to certain characters those characters typically being women of color that's my last take on the art i don't want to say that everything about the art didn't do it for me it was just the inconsistency and that's like i am a little particularly defensive about storm not being drawn in the most best ways agree um, and, I and that's agree. okay yeah I, I gotta agree page 14 of digital when she's like i am you oh, i am you that was amazing art i still what is happening anyways 
right i was i was so lost at that point but i'm like they're probably yeah was it like did she battle a psychic is like is it like shadow king or like is it a shapeshifter or what any listeners who've read the marvel identity voices for the asian and pacific islander stories it kind of reminded me of the shang the shang chi story where he had to fight his inner demons but like the ring that's what i kind of thought of i see that as well joge and i just kind of want to raise you guys another kind of level and this is so weird but I've been wondering that there, you know, something we keep talking about on this show, and I'm looking right at you, Steve. Uh, is you? the great? I am right at you. Like I, it's, it's <laughs> DJ Encore and Angelina levels of I see right through to you. Listen, so, we can't see each other, so I'm a little worried about that. He should be. He should be terrified. I'm going all Agamotto on your ass. I'm gonna have to start fully dressing for these podcasts. <laughs> Please don't. No, so we, no. we keep talking about the price of magic. What's the price of Impossiblum or whatever they're called? Mutonium? Mysterium. Mysterium. What's the price of Mysterium? Well, as Doom has undeniably blathered on about like he does there is a price to the mysterium and he thinks it's going to be of galactic consequence it could be the weakening of the barriers that allowed dormammu in for the last annihilation i mean that's that's certainly the implication i think as as like part of it you know i just wonder if the fact that the white hot room has something to do with mysterium and the white hot room is frequently about the notion of facing self i wonder what trials they went through to get the mysterium and I wonder if perhaps there really is some sort of weird shadow storm. Yeah. Oh my God. I need to write this. Give me oh shadow my God. storm. Yeah. But oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Just thinking about it. The mutants have Mysterium and like Ileana has a realm full of what was Prometheum? Is that what the metal is that made the soul sword? Yeah. So like they've got all these things. Well, then they have the Electrum and the Nth metal and eventually there's the mantling. It's a whole thing. You know, there's also a time display storm in there who does plenty of magic. There's also Bloodstorm when she was fucking mm-hmm. dragged. Dracula. No, she was Dracula. Yes, but is there a maelstrom? A maelstrom? <laughs> I'm okay. Raven just absolutely threw the gauntlet down. Here's okay. So here's the thing. I, I, we saw that maelstrom for cosplay. Oof. Yes, it was so good. I one time read a really aggressive criticism of Jason Aaron's run on Thor and Wolverine and the X-Men as the denial of Yonic value in the notion of Marvel's Phoenix, an eternally female notion in the pages of his Thor and Wolverine and the X-Men, supplanting the Yonic imagery with petulant phallic violence that specifically under Jason Aaron's pen, the two Phoenixes he focuses on are Wolverine and Quentin Quire, who are at all times essentially the opposite of Gene in a yin-yang sort of situation, if we consider the contextualization of Morrison's definition of Gene as a pacifist whose antics belie a playground bully, right? If we accept that Gene's darkness is the thing that she has created this joy to contain, right? And we consider then that Wolverine's darkness is the shell to protect his fear that his one last shred of joy will be perverted, and we consider that Quentin Quire fears vulnerability so he's created this outside shell, right? When we recontextualize this idea of the elimination of the the female from Phoenix for the last 10 years, and we recontextualize the idea that the two major players in what is now the White Hot Room's biggest storylines, Mysterium with Storm being the big player in Sword, and Wanda being the biggest player in relation to the White Hot Room in regard to the trial of Magneto, it sort of seems like Marvel is 
trying to position the white hot room as a reclaimant element of an overwhelming sense of magic for the mutants. It's almost as if they're trying to say, if we've already kind of perverted of the Phoenix, we can't take AVX back. And if you take a look at the, and I think Dante said it best, if you're going to enter the Phoenix from Aaron's Avengers for Dark Phoenix Saga, you're not going for the right thing. If you're going for a punch em up arena full of fun that results in a woman of color becoming the Phoenix, then you're doing the right thing. And if we sort of look at the White Hot Room in the Phoenix as a recontextualization of mutant magic in the Marvel Universe, there's something really synergistic about the beautiful way that all of this is coming together. The Phoenix has moved into the Avengers, the X-Men has moved into space, Scarlet Witch has moved back to the X-Men, Krakoa has moved to the main stage. There's so much going on with this notion of transience that I feel like the sword stations as this sort of crossover point are really important recontextualizations for X-Men going forward. It makes me not so worried about whatever happens after Inferno. I don't think we're losing Krakoa, and even if we lost Krakoa, we have sword. I'm, like, not worried right now. I like you talking about the White Hot Room as a mutant magical place and the bringing it back to that, especially since in the original Phoenix Saga, Jean, or maybe it's the Dark Phoenix Saga, I can't remember right now, but Jean comes to like realize her place in the Kabbalistic Tree of Life during that saga as the Tifereth of their of their group. It's it's very interesting, it's very high-minded, it's very Claremont, but Al Ewing has been bringing a lot of that stuff back in all his dealings with the White Hot Room, and the, with the fact that the Mysteriums appears to come out of Ophanim seems to me to be tying it to a very heavenly dimension sort of sort of magic, like a, you know, like, not not so much your occultism, I, I, I hate to draw a, dist- a distinction here, because there really isn't one, but it's the kind of religious magic that you see that is highly uh, structured and formal. Yeah, you know, but I'm not going to I'm not going to disagree with you. I know that at least, you know, certainly Raven myself and Steve, you all three of us have spoken about this. But there is sort of a difference between the idea of sacrament and the idea of um sacredness. There's an idea of difference between, you know, I it goes back to something one time I was talking a lot about religion in class one time and somebody said to me, "Wow, you know a lot about Christian religion. Are you born again?" And I said, "No, once was bad enough. Thank you." And it's <laughs> sort of that general sentiment right Mm -hmm. it's somebody one time said to me why don't you believe in organized religion and i said because i'm much happier with disorganized religion (laughs) it's this idea that they're not trying to put a religious order to things they're trying to put a defined mysticism I, i get it it's kind of like why you try to explain to people the difference between strict judaism and kabbalah like I get it. It's it's hard to say though. Yeah, I just don't. I just don't want to necessarily draw a distinction between using magical systems that are in line with major world religions and using magical systems that are seen as uh, I don't know black magic or occult or esoteric. Because I mean, in the in the long haul of working magical systems, I don't really see a difference. Oh, I I see a huge difference because religious magics tend to be very strict, structured, and forceful. For sure, Where, the yeah. Yeah. Whereas, whereas non-religious magics tend to be more asking of something, you know, giving some sort of a sacrifice, hoping that you get, you know, a good result. But you're you're expecting the universe to do its work how it sees fit. Versus, I need this done. It needs to be done in this time frame. Dut, 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 which is, you know, religious magic. You know, the more spiritual yeah. tends to be a little bit more, a little bit more flowy, or at least that's how I kind of see it. I don't, and I don't really see I, that being a distinction because I think that there are peop- 
people of like there there are people of selfish or selfless selfless needs uh in both systems i don't know it's, mm-hmm. it's just that's like a debate system but well and i like to note that now we have seen storm be called a witch a lot more often and she has corrected uh, a couple of people and went it's a weather witch to Say you the whole name she has barehanded mysterium which we know is highly magically intoned potent materium yeah i would not touch it so i mean that kind of opens her up to literally absorbing magic so this could be an an interesting thing to see how mysterium is going to affect mutants since it is almost like a refined form of the magical energies that are, you know, in the Marvel universes. We do know that Storm has a strong propensity towards magic, too. Mm. Hey everybody, Nico here again. Now in this next segment, we're going to talk about X-Men Unlimited 1 through 4. This is a very different kind of story for Marvel. Number one, it used an infinite scrolling style as opposed to an infinite panel change style. So it was a little bit different from the initial Marvel Infinity Comics, although I know they've experimented with this recently. We've also covered a few other of these Marvel Infinity Comics, having covered Shang-Chi, numbers 1 through 4, as well as the first four installments of its Jeff. So we do have a lot of really positive things to say about this update on Marvel Unlimited. It has definitely been a great opportunity to connect with these characters on a more individual level. And so far, each one of these Marvel Unlimited stories have served to highlight elements of the story that we're maybe not getting in the regular title. So it's been a lot of fun, and we hope you guys enjoy it just as much as we have. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. Now I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and scrolling right along. I'm Kyle, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, that's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-82. Hey guys, I'm Drew. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Drewsifer3. That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. Hey everybody, it's Nathan with my megaphone. Uh, hey everybody, it's Nathan. You can find me online at Dazzler AOA on Twitter and Instagram. That's Dazzler AOA. <laughs> megaphone! I was going to go like, hi. I was going to go like, hi. Whoa. I was gonna go like, hi, it's Nathan, but I was like, no, just gotta stay with myself. That must make me Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at peakjonah, that's P-E-A-K, and we hope you survived this experience, unlike all those AIM soldiers that kidnapped some mutants for some nefarious deeds that we don't know exactly what they're doing, but like, they're doing stuff, and then MODOK was there, but not actually, it was just an AI computer, and he lost all his memories, which was kind of sad, but like, we love seeing MODOK being beat up. Okay. I just need to start with, I'm kind of famous for doing impressions of everybody's introductions on the show, and <laughs> I've pointed out to Nathan that he comes in a little louder than most people, and I could hear him realizing it when he said, it's Nathan! <laughs> no, no, I really wanted to come and be like, hi, it's Nathan, but like, I was like, no, don't change it up, just be yourself! 
So we're here today to talk about X-Men Unlimited. Now, this is, of course, the third volume of X-Men Unlimited. X-Men Unlimited originally had its origins during the 1990s comic boom of the X-Men explosion, where somehow within 10 years, Marvel sold their, to this day, two best-selling issues of any comic books, X-Men number one by Chris Claremont and Jim Lee, as well as X-Force number one by Fabian Cieza and Rob Liefeld. Now, those two issues both came out in 1990-1991, and they would ultimately be the two best-selling issues of Marvel Comics ever, famously selling somewhere between mm, two and five million copies, depending on the source you read it from. But if you hear it from Todd McFarland, if it was his book, it would definitely be 36 million copies. <laughs> anyway, so X-Men Unlimited had its famous roots in trying to tell large, expansive stories that were meant to be the next big hot thing. A lot of major characters and introductions to huge crossover events took place in the pages of X-Men Unlimited. Initially, Sienna Blaze, who was expected to be the next fucking storm, popped into the pages of X-Men Unlimited before flashing out just as fast as you could say, upstarts you don't. So from there, things like Fatal Attractions would be introduced in the pages of X-Men Unlimited. And as the title continued through the ever-changing course of the 90s, the book found itself on a new trajectory, a monthly trajectory. And instead of telling new ideas that were meant to further the X-Line, it told support ideas meant to help enhance stories currently coming out. The biggest time you could see this, and you're going back and kind of looking at it, would probably be somewhere around the Claremont Revolution, and wow, there's nobody involved in Counter X whose name I can even say on this show. Oh, God, no. Feel good about. There's no one. That is tragic. Oof, that's really tragic because that's some good stories. They are some good stories. Oh, my God. There's some really good stories. You could probably see it there if you're willing. Oh, John Francis Moore. That's a name I can say. <laughs> so. From there, during the age of new X-Men and extreme X-Men, as well as the, yes, that Chuck Austin, Shira's Chuck Austin, I don't even know what to, uh, I don't even know, Chuck Austin run on Uncanny X-Men, you can see that X-Men Unlimited was used as a support book. Now, those issues would later be collected in one of my favorite specialty volumes ever produced by Marvel, a specialty volume called New X-Men Companion. Now, New X-Men is famously my favorite run of any X-Book ever, and while New X-Men Companion probably isn't of exactly the same caliber storytelling that Grant Morrison's epic 41-issue series is, New X-Men Companion really does its best to weave together the elements of New X-Men, Uncanny X-Men, and even Chris Claremont's Extreme X-Men in a way that gives a holistic understanding of the Marvel Universe, focusing on where the X-Men fit in. From there, the book would be restarted as a monthly title, and unfortunately, it wouldn't last too long. House of M meant a lot of very successful books met their untimely end. Now, I'm using the term very successful, I guess, by today's standards, because books selling 2005's crashing X-Men market numbers huh. would be heralded as the saviors of the industry today. So... It's kind of an interesting thing to look at, but it seems as though Marvel is finally ready to give X-Men Unlimited another try. Now, I have been a big proponent of this series for a long time. I'm always saying we need to tell multi-part stories in a series. That's traditionally what X-Men Unlimited was for. A little surprising to see them do it here in kind of the opposite way. Instead, they're breaking down one story into multiple parts. Considering, though, that they're doing it in a weekly format over on the pages of Marvel Unlimited, I'm not too upset about it. Now, this first story 
story is brought to us by the pretty solid X-Core team of Jonathan Hickman, Declan Shavley, and VC's Joe Sabino. Now, I want to start with, before anything else, I'm a big Infinity comic reader. I love digital comics. I love scrolling in every direction. This, for me, felt like home. This felt like a lot of other stuff I read, whether it's on Webtoon or it's on Topastic or it's on any number of sites. How do you guys feel, though, about the Infinite Scroll style? I actually like it a lot. One of the reasons why I don't read digital is because I don't, like, I only have an, an iPhone. So it's all the panels on a regular layout are way too too small to read unless you use like the panel by panel format which is a little bit better but still not ideal on a phone but this it's kind of reminds me of like when snapchat used to do all those stories and you just like scroll keep scrolling like an endless scroll and it just works out so much better and it's more like i think it's more ideal for reading on like a, a mobile phone and you can like and they utilize that and like with the panels which is like super sick i, I think they use some great stuff i think they use some great artistic choices like showing the peak in the big long scrolling fashion because it really gave you an idea of how expansive that whole setup is that being said i almost like the previous format of the infinity some of the infinity comics where i read where you would side scroll and they would like sometimes add another like panel uh, like... yeah well we're gonna get to that in a minute oh, <laughs> we're gonna talk about my my ever longing for motion style infinite comics that yeah. are panel changing sequences oh god because i was rereading after this i was like oh cool i was like let me go reread that x-men 92 infinity comic which i love that that almost motion comic i like it a lot but i think that there are some technical things that they could improve on with x-men unlimited in particular they released what three issues on the same day i think my one wish is that when you reach the end of a comic like with the the normal horizontal screen rolling i kind of wish that once you hit that point it brings you to a here's the next comic click here to read it i feel like i get there but i have to scroll an extra couple of times like and you shouldn't have to <laughs> you shouldn't have to and i've i've never gotten that maybe it's my tablet that's the issue i don't know yeah reading on iphone i have to back out of the issue to get to the next issue I, it won't let me scroll to it like it will in other comics now, Jonah, I feel like, you know, you are a Tumblr baby. You know, one of the things I had to learn when we first met was what the fuck a Vine is. And I'm really curious, how do you feel about this endless scroll style? It was designed with essentially your generation's comic reading preference in mind with the success of things like Webtoon. So it took some getting used to at first. It's not something that I was expecting because I got so accustomed to reading digital and this is the page, you hit right for the next page. So I remember sitting on like the first thing and I'm like, I'm trying to scroll to the next page. What? Why, why can't I click it? It's not, it's not doing anything. I'm clicking, I'm clicking. And I was like, oh, you got to scroll. So it did, get, it did take me a little bit of time to adjust to it, but I do like it for certain formats. It is really nice to just not have 
have to click anything and to just get to just go, okay, and you can spend as much time on certain things as much as you want. The way that it's also structured is that it's less narrative focused in the sense that there's only so much art and dialogue that you can fit while you're scrolling without having to stop and then keep going. So it tends to keep the art more concise as well as the writing and the dialogue that we do get tends to be a little bit shorter so you can read through it a little bit faster. And that's something that I appreciate. I'm actually a really big fan of digital comics, like I said. I think this whole idea that we can explore what a format what a format has to offer is really important to, to the further evolution of comics, not just as a medium, but the survival of comics as an idea. Comics are a very time-consuming art form in a world where animation can be made just as fast. So we need to keep finding ways that comics remain relevant. Now, for all of my interest in digital comics and this eternal scrolling format, I am a little bit more a fan of the infinite style comic that Nathan, you mentioned earlier. I loved the infinite style comics that Marvel produced, not to bring up a sore topic for somehow the second time to fucking day, but AVX actually kicked off with AVX number zero, which was an infinite comic starring the young Sam, who is Nova, uh, my favorite Nova, love the character, love everything they've done with him. And I find myself a little disappointed that that format is gone. Now, Nathan, it sounded like you have some experience with that format as well. Had you read Wolverine Japan's Most Wanted, uh, AVX number zero? What were some of your interactions with the Marvel panel change infinite comic style? And did anybody else here have any experience with it? Okay, first off, I'm surprised that Dick Rider isn't your favorite Nova, but you know, anyway. Uh Well, I mean, his name (laughs) is my favorite. Actually, I was talking about that with Jonah on the way to the gym this morning. His name is Dick Rider, but and now he's gay. So great, but you know. But okay, so back to the actual question. I more have read the X-Men 92 because I was like stupidly obsessed with that series when they brought it out. I was like, oh my God, it's fun. Wolverine stories never in never really brought me in until recently. So that's why I'm kind of like, oh cool. I'm gonna go back and read that one. And I and I hated AVX so much that I didn't want to go back and read that. <laughs> and so but the X-Men 92 was a really fun, good time. I love that time. Now, did anybody else have any experience with the infinite style comic where the panels themselves would have elements change to create a visual motion style comic was that almost like how they did they do it with like astonishing x-men and like the yeah they actually yeah they went back and they produced those and added voiceover but there actually was a line of comics in that style with panels and bubbles and stuff even like with the trailers that they've been doing recently for like the trial you know, that's a great point. It really feels like because they're doing those trailers, maybe that's why they're not doing that style of comic anymore. And instead, they're draw they're jumping on the scroll style of comic. That's a really great point. I really like that, that perspective, Drew. Now, we've been told that the first four issues are going to be by Hickman. The next four issues are going to be by Jerry Dugan. And the arc that begins with issue number nine will feature an all-new cast of mutants. So we're in for a pretty interesting experience with this book, considering there is nothing all new about the experience provided in X-Men Unlimited number one through four. I, in fact, maybe even found myself at times a little frustrated with the redundancy. One of the things that definitely felt fun at first was how often we fell into things. 
<laughs> but by the third or fourth, okay, I have been scrolling for so goddamn long, my wrist hurts like I was masturbating. What is happening here? Like, there was just too much utilization of the novelty of falling into things. <laughs> How did you guys feel about the efficacy of utilizing the format like that? I think it worked well, especially since the story took place entirely in space. Not having that gravity requirement made it work better for me. There were other Infinity comics that I read that just felt like you're scrolling to a new panel every the couple of inches. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as much as I loved the flowers to transition us, it just didn't feel like it was going anywhere. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't feel as fluid as as this did. Yeah, even like the I loved it, the Jeff the Shark one. It also like I found that it was just like panel, 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 panel. Whereas this was like long panels that would like like if you wanted to make this into a trade, I don't even know if it you could really do it because of how long some of the panels are. You'd have to like shorten them. So you're bringing up something really fascinating, and it's actually been done where books have unusual trims and have to be properly collected. There's actually a Vertigo book called Vertigo and it was a book of all falling and it was sideways and it was like double the length of a normal comic. Hmm. So it can be done. It's just really an expensive endeavor and you really have to have an audience that's willing to shell out the cash. This is X-Men. The audience is automatically willing to shell out the cash. X marks the bank spot. So like (laughs) I don't think anybody's worried. To me it felt like the falling scenes were just more padding than anything else. I was excited when I was like, ooh, we get to see another Hickman piece. Ooh, cool, let's go see what this is. And then I was like, oh, this is it. It was a very throwaway story, and they used that to pad the space out where I think they could have used that space to do a little bit more story with it itself. Well, and I actually have a theory on some of why this is so thin. One of the things that is the hallmark of a great run is the ability to go in and kind of just fuck around. And I mean that with all the love in the world. Recently on this show, and I'm so sorry, I feel so bad that I can't stop bringing it up, but I recently heard somebody on the show say, there's no bad runs of Daredevil, and I heard a whole room full of people agree, and my stomach hurt because I'm like, (laughs) I have read so many bad runs of Daredevil, right? But one of the hallmarks of a great run of Daredevil is once the rhythm is so good, you can do a Guts Nelson story. Once the rhythm is so good, you can do the Mike Allred fill-in. Once the rhythm fits just right, Daredevil Road Warrior is exactly what you need. And that's just three examples from the Wade run, which always had the beat right on. If you take a look at the Bendis run, you could use Trial of the Century as an example of a moment of breather room, which actually, interestingly enough, that issue has a surprise fill-in by Terry Dodson aping Alex Maleve as one of the only fill-ins for Maleve in that entire run. So that's really interesting. But back to the story at hand, I kind of felt like this was our filler. This was that, oh man, isn't it cool to read Hickman just get to enjoy his own status quo? Like one of the things I feel like Hickman always promised us was, you know, Scott and Logan in Speedos and Logan and Kurt wrestling and maybe Mm. Logan and Gambit into some pain play. So I feel like there were things that I expected to get from Hickman's run that I didn't get. And this was me kind of getting it without having to pay $3.99 across four months for it. 
Okay. Jonah, how did you feel about getting to see Hickman finally write a little more Nightcrawler, a character that we always thought was going to be his character from the beginning, and that these, his inclusion was very much as, you know, the X-Men's magic school bus? <laughs> he didn't really play much of a role for a really long time in the Dawn of X era. Honestly, even before the Ten of Swords event, he only really came into his way when we got the story of Way of X. Nightcrawler was kind of just sitting there doing nothing because he was too busy thinking about the world and too busy thinking about religion and stuff. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about how Hickman gave me what I really love about Kurt and Nightcrawler in that the way that they interact, I don't think Logan interacts with anybody else the way that he interacts with Kurt. He is a lot more soft and a lot more relaxed talking with Kurt. And that's about anything. And this is something that you see as a consistency through their relationship and friendship throughout the many years that they've been in comics together. So so I was really weirded out, but also excited to see Kurt there because it was one of those things where I was like, I was not expecting this to be Kurt. Could have literally been almost anybody else. Kurt was not on my mind. I thought it was going to be one of one of. It could have uh, been Chamber. <laughs> it could have been Chamber. Chamber, I would expect it because we literally have not seen Chamber after his dismissal from New Mutants. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, you're fired. <laughs> He's like, fired. Uh, he he and Mondo kind of did get fired, and they kind of just got. They were like, mm, you are new mutants, but like, not like you guys are too new. You're, <laughs> you're like, you're both too now. new and not new enough. <laughs> They're like, sashay away. I was really here for this mission, these characters, everything about it. Uh, my drag persona for Chamber would be Chambermaid. And <laughs> I also think that just to bring up Chamber for a moment, Chamber was one of the best utilizations of this format for me. One of the things I thought was brilliant was having his face blast field descend down to transition us into the next panel situation was a really clever use of what is one of the most recognizable iconographies for an underrated character that I can think of. You know, the idea that they were able to tell this whole story with a bunch of aim goons, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Chamber, and a toilet is really <laughs> fascinating because I think so much of it relied on the sword station to do a lot of the work for the heavy lifting. How did you guys feel about the very limited, and for those of you who have been following the show forever, you guys must have been so happy for me, and that's specific, specifically at Josh, because I know he's listening. You guys must have been so happy for me for the Joe Casey X-Men reunion that I got here with Chamber, Nightcrawler, and Wolverine. This was like a Poptopia reunion for me. How did you guys feel about this crew? I love that epic throwback. I mean, that Poptopia is such an amazing run. It's like, yes, I wish we had gotten to see like Kurt earlier and Chamber earlier too, to give them a little bit more to do in the story itself. I really wish that we had gotten to see more interplay between them. But I do love, like you said, the, the use of Chamber's powers. And I love that one scene where like Logan's falling and Kurt's like vamping down and like he kind of like catches Logan at the end. So like, I thought they really utilized their powers well with in the format both of them but uh i really 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 wish we got more chamber also who was who was the other mutant that they ended up getting away with was it husk we don't know I yeah i was under the impression that that was purposefully left kind of like because uh, i was talking about it with some other people and they said husk and i thought it was like i thought it was rogue but in her uh her like mike carey you know, it looks like iliana's graduation uniform from like new mutants too Q vitamin C. <laughs> <laughs>
it was like i don't know it was like a pretty simple story like nothing really happened overall like in the grand scheme well something did happen but like it didn't seem as big that you'd expect from hickman it just seemed kind of like a light intro story like we were saying earlier i do love the use of the toilet character he was probably the star of the show for me too though that aim scientist who was just taking a poop <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah, can I ask you guys a question about that? And this is something that really stuck out to me, and I wrote it down in my notes like three different times. I understand that these guys are coming for our mutant heroes, but did anybody else notice just how many humans it was okay to kill here? Yeah. Like, toss humans at the fucking airlock day. This was, you kill a human, you kill a human, everybody kills a human. You're killing a human. Yeah, wouldn't that land them into the pit? But Wolverine can get away with it because he's part of X-Force. So if he decides it's X-Force business, then he's like, I'm going to kill you, Bob. X-Force. I think the rule is a little more nuanced than you can't kill any human ever. This is a specific evil group that has specifically targeted mutants for whatever they're doing, whether they're just trying to fight for survival or not, too. doesn't really make much of a point. They deem themselves as a threat uh, to the mutant nation. And I think it's not going against the Krakoan laws in that sense only. Now, I think where the problem might be of the law is like, if Gorgon, in that one issue of Way of X where Gorgon was going crazy because of Fabian Cortez, and he took his blindfold off and basically turned all those humans into stone and that some of them died, Gorgon would probably, no matter, even though it wasn't his fault explicitly, would have been thrown into the pit. Oh, I don't know about that. I, mm, I, mm, I don't know. I feel like you know, other because then, like, wouldn't um, if the laws also hurt no mutant, then wouldn't anybody involved in the onslaught debacle have to then be in trouble as well? Because mutants got hurt in that, and they weren't in control of themselves. So I don't know. It's tricky. I thought it well. It was because like AIM has has stolen like mutants. You know, it's like a mm. almost like a threat, like an act of war. You know, it's kind of self defense in a way. I mean, I'm fine with it. I mean, stab them. They're AIM scientists. Yeah. I'm fine with it. Kill them. It's fine. But like, it just felt very specifically like no mention made of it. <laughs> you can only kill if you're not Victor Creed. Like otherwise, you can just kill all the humans you want. Because you know what, didn't, I guess I am thinking, I'm not thinking about the fact that Mystique killed as many people as she needed to, etc. Okay, and there's a lot of bombs. We do do a lot of bombs. And evidently, according to the pages of some book where they might be thinking about burning it all down, there have been a number of attacks on a number of things, and I'm sure people died in those too. Okay, 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 I'm convinced. So now, one of the big things that this story presented us as readers was an opportunity to interact with Wolverine on a personal level from somebody other than Ben Percy's perspective. That's something we have not had in pretty much the entire Krakoan era outside of the pages of Wolverine, Red, White, and Blood, and Black and White and Blood. One of the things about that book was that it was all over the place era-wise. How did you guys feel about getting another writer behind the voice of Wolverine for the first time in several years? I, I thought Hickman really nailed a lot of the humor that I love from Logan, especially when he finds the beer and he's like here's to ted i'm gonna pour one out for you that really just hit it in a way that like percy is going a different direction with logan than that i was like yes i'd love to see it really because i thought they were kind of similar in a way that he's like like there it, it is he is serious but there is still kind of jokes like my favorite gag was when he's like in the first issue and he's like i'm the best there is at what i do and then he 
like Clunk. face plants right into the <laughs> into the station. <laughs> Logan, Logan. <laughs> I've said before, I'm not the biggest fan of Logan. I did enjoy this particular story with him. It felt like a an X Men story, not a Wolverine book story. So it it just felt different, I guess, than what I've been used to from Benjamin Percy's telling. So for you, it's not so much that Logan's different, it's that the container is different enough, and that shifts the narrative. Yeah. Where I think the voice of Percy continues to take Logan in a very serious place, because Logan is a very serious guy, even though there's a lot of things funny about Logan. There's a lot of comedy in Logan. Difference here is that I think the current Wolverine stories that we're getting in his solo title, he's interacting with characters that force him to be serious and not so much of a moral, of, of lighthearted, whether that's characters that he enjoys interacting with, like Kurt or someone like Gene or Scott, versus characters like Solemn and <laughs> where he has to be very aggressive and serious, or um, interacting with his kids where he's, you know, basically best stage dad, just rooting them on, hoping the best for them, but not really interacting with them any, any other way. <laughs> In this story, you see Logan kind of take his mission seriously, but he's also, Logan's not somebody who takes life too seriously. You see him, you know, excessive in many of different vices, whether that's sex, alcohol, smoking. He doesn't really care that much because life to him is very different when you have a constant regenerative factor. So I like that we got to see the softer side of Logan kind of taking the piss out of the mission in life, as well as him interacting with characters that I know he tends to have a softer side with, like Kurt, and characters I've never seen him interact with before, like Chamber. And I think that's just what where I think the main difference comes from, is the characters he's forced to interact with in those stories. Now, one of the things that I really loved about this story was that because it didn't take itself too seriously, it was able to deliver what was essentially a complete ending. The mission itself is not very complicated. AIM has stolen some mutants, Logan chases them and then chases them some more, gets faked out, chases them some more, rescues Nightcrawler, Nightcrawler helps him rescue Chamber, and alas, there is still one mutant in the possession of AIM, even though everything seems real fun back at home. I think the thing that worked for me the most significantly about this story was that it felt like any Krakoan adventure, and it sort of felt like the moment between the moments that Hickman was trying to set up. If this really is one of the last entries that Hickman is making on his X-Men, it sounds to me as though he's going back to where he started. In a lot of ways, this was Logan and Nightcrawler on a reconnaissance mission in space looking to take down some scientists. And that sounds an awful lot like to the events of Hoxpox. How do you guys feel about Hickman managing to sneak back in one last tribute to the earliest days of the Krakoan era before he makes his way on out, burning everything to the ground? I didn't make that connection, but I totally love it. And I hope that we get the continuation before he's completely done. Well, there's a rumor that he's going to be part of whatever the weekly series that relaunches the X-Books in 2022 is. So... Even if he's not like the main writer on it, it does sound like he will have given some head of Exian advice, perhaps. Now, Drew, you know, you came in as like the Hoxpox kid. You were like, hi, I'm Drew, and I'm here to love John Hickman. And that was your agenda from day one. And I mean, you've grown into so much more of a contributor than that. But this sort of goodbye to Hickman in many ways, how do you feel about the touchback on the main narrative of Hoxpox that brought us all into this mess? 
Yeah, so originally I thought this was like Hickman had lied to us and we were actually like this was going to be like a Hickman series of just like anthologies, kind of like what X-Men was. But once with the newest issue that came out as uh, by Jerry Duggan, I was like, oh, he is actually just leaving. <laughs> so it is kind of like it's like a little bit bittersweet because like obviously it has to end soon. But going back to your question, I think that it is like especially with Inferno going around too, it is very like Hawks Poxy has returned you know like we're getting that energy all of those like stuff is coming back i am very excited and very happy that we got this i really enjoyed what hickman's vision was for the mutant race and the mutant whole and kind and comics when we got that hox pox era and i think it was just a really different interesting step to take these characters and help even push them further into the modern age and this story in and of itself I think was a really, it was really nice to return to him writing something and to see what his ideas of a X-Men rescue mission would be like. And it's not something that we got in Hawksbox because it's not something that was deemed there. It was a lot of very heavy narrative telling. And this is a kind of a little bit of return to form to what the X-Men kind of do. It's you give it a mission, you go on it. So it was really refreshing to see Jonathan Hickman in this kind of role of what is more of the return to form missions that the X-Men do. And I was really happy about that. It's kind of like a full circle on that Hawkspot moment. But if you, when you're reading it, it looks like he had fun doing more of what he couldn't do before, where he actually got a chance to give them some moments to breathe, some moments to have that jovial nature. You can tell he really loves the interactions between the two characters and him bringing Chamber in as well. Like, obviously, he's got to love Chamber to some point because he brought Chamber into his New Mutants run at first when kind of like he's like, Chamber, Mondo, come on. But I'm waiting. Get into <laughs> the group. Oh, I love the fact that he was able to bring a lot more of those relationships to life and give him more space when he didn't have time before. I know he's mentioned in some stories that he really wished he had like more time to include this character more. So this seems like him circling back to one of those characters he wished he had more time to see. Now we know that. Unlimited is going to change directions a bit. We have a new arc coming in that seems a little bit more eh, Jerry Duggany. You know, it seems a little bit more, you know, where he's at. If there's one thing you guys hope to see in the pages of X-Men Unlimited, what would it be? I know for me, there's been a lot of promise of really like casual and obscure mutants making a comeback. And I just think this would be an opportunity. Chamber was a nice start, but I'm looking for some Indra level shit here. <laughs> yeah, I love Indra. Mm, I am going to go off the wall. I want a Glob Herman cooking uh, series. <gasps> That's where I want to be. <laughs> oh my god, please. I, I would love to also see a continuation of characters that are more obscure, and I'm trying to think of a character that I don't tout always, so I'm just going to say, let's get more of those D-lister mutants back in. Andrew. I told Nico my version of a story of a very obscure character. I would bring Dummy back, but not in the sense that he's resurrected. Dummy never actually died. Dummy absorbed himself into the Earth's atmosphere and has been controlling everything all along. Ooh. And Dummy is secretly the most powerful mutant in the Dummies world. Dummies are smarty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know who I want to see. I want to see Rasputin 4 come back. Yeah, um, I yes. that would be amazing. A great place to do it. I would really mm -hmm. appreciate that. A little, like, sly sneak in. That would be awesome. Yeah. I love how the series wrapped up. I hope we really find out who that secret mutant is, be it Husk, be it Magic in her old costume, be it whoever we could imagine it is. I, I kind of love that it was left uh, 
uh, open-ended. I- I'd love to see that story picked up because we know Krakow and Era has been picking stories back up. So hopefully we see that. And I really like the start of this uh, Nature Girl run. So I'm looking forward to that. And I'm really just pumped and excited to see Marvel use the X-Men Unlimited title again to tell these sort of stories that don't fit in the normal book. More MODOK. More MODOK, please. <laughs> Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. Now, we have been covering Reptile pretty in-depth, and it has meant an awful lot to us since day one, not just because we are big fans of inclusion and diverse storytelling, but because so many of us are young Latinos who not only needed this sort of representation for ourselves, but many of us look up to Terry, and getting to see a queer Latino create a world full of rich Mexican culture and queer Latinos where we can see our ourselves. It was just a real pleasure to get to read this book and to talk about it week after week. Guys, we love making this show for you every week for the last three years and hopefully for as long as they keep making Marvel comics. So until next time, guys, enjoy this last segment. Keep those mutant gateways open. Keep those Krakoan lights lit. Keep Dazzler playing on that jukebox. And guys, we'll see you every week. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Excess for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. Now, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and I would transform into a Tyrannosaurus because I am totally a Red Ranger kind of guy and definitely, definitely would cosplay Jason as the Gold Ranger. So I guess, guys, don't forget to name your dinosaur. Hey, everyone. This is Dante. <laughs> You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Inferno Magic. That's magic with a K. And I suppose I'd have to go Blue Ranger with the Triceratops because that was the, he was my guy. Oh, great choice. He was my choice for a really long time, and then I got and then I like I got really into red. But I get it. Mm, yeah, I mean there was no purple, so I had to go blue. <laughs> Same, same, same color faggotry. <laughs> Y'all don't even know. Anyway, I'm Nathan. <laughs> you can find me online at Dazzler AOA on Twitter and Instagram. And I guess that makes me pterodactyl. Sorry, I was transforming. Well, no, I respect it. I super duper respect it because, King you know, Framinger one of the, supremacy. I want to point out they were always really, I mean, it's the same piece of footage over and over again. Please don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, you know, it's that shout. It's, and like, I really understand from the way we all kind of come in, it really does fit because, you know, and I was saying this to Steve and Kyle that Steve kind of comes in the same way and he's always like, uh, hey, I'm uh, Steve and uh, you guys <laughs> yes, can find exactly. me at Howdy Duda. And, you know, Kyle comes in the same way. He comes in, and I'm Kyle. And, you know, we all kind of have our pattern, right? Oh, and so 100%. it really does make sense that we, because, you know, and Josh comes in, and I'm Josh Wheel. And, like, you know what I mean? There's that, there's that <laughs> role to it. So it all sort of makes sense that we would have our person that we sound like. Nathan, 1,000%, you sound like a Kimberly screaming pterodactyl <laughs> when you come in. You're just Absolutely. like, and I'm Nathan! And, like, it's, it's so palpable that there's and you know triceratops kind of like triceratops it's very and maybe it's triceraverse i'm not here to judge and i'm dante, a triceratops you, right you come in kind of the same way you're like i'm dante triceratops right and like i kind of come in like tyrannosaurus you know what i mean it's so like i really get i really i think our dinosaurs say a lot about us yeah um, i am a pink ranger I'm dying. We're never going to get through this episode. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, we oh. are here to talk about Reptile Number no. 4 by Terry Blas, Enid Balam, Victor Olazaba, Carlos Lopez, and VCs Joe Sabino. And, like, it is so fucking wild how many incredible Latino names are on this book. And, of course, that is never to judge. Myself, my actual, you know, like, my legal last name is not Action. And even if it were, Action isn't a specifically Latin <laughs> last name. But so, like, look, you know, I... Change it. <laughs> right? I'm gonna. I'm gonna change the word Action to legally be Latin. So, I was at a convention a billion, zillion, trillion, million years ago. And I was lucky enough to be on a panel. And I have this incredible memory of talking about how hard it is for me to be Latino in a world where I am whiter than most people think a Cuban is. And I was not raised in the way that, you know, TV has informed you that all Latin families go home and they say, my family, mi familia, about everything. You know what I mean? Like, you know, and they only have rice and beans every night. Like, I'm sorry. I don't fit your stereotype. I'll do better in the future. But it can be really hard for me to feel at one with my culture and my heritage. And I was lucky enough to be on a panel with Vida Ayala. And Vida said, if you're Latin at all, you're Latin enough. That's that. Stop letting anybody else define your culture and heritage for you. They're going to try and you just need to not let them because they're always going to try. So if you just always not let them, you're good. And that really changed a lot for me. That changed a lot about the way I interact with the world. I started saying, in the course of making this show that I was a proud Latino. As a matter of fact, I can even document the episode of the change. So like, I I feel as though Reptil kind of came into his own as a Latino character as well. Of course, the brilliant Christos Gage has always sought to create a beautiful world filled with the diversity outside his window as well. But it is always incredible getting to see such top tier talent be so um, what's the phrase I'm looking for? goddamn brown all over the page and i love it so fucking much how does everybody else feel about the celebration of latino culture up and down the pages of reptile oh my god i love it so my first of all i need that quote from vita on a t-shirt so i can wear it every day for me this book was just such a beautiful blend of different aspects of what it's like to grow up latino in the u.s being different being queer and just like you're saying nico like not fitting the quote-unquote mold the cookie cutter stereotype like everything about this this little mini series just meant so much to me and i i said this to nathan earlier i was like i felt like perry was writing this book for me <laughs> Like, no lie. I just, I felt such a connection. And and honestly, like, my knowledge of Reptile is very, very minimal. Like, I, I know I've read the character, but I didn't really know the character that well. And I connected so much with, with him and this book and his family, his familia, the gay cousin. <laughs> Like the the magical sister it was just like or the magical cousin as well um, just ah it, it's hard to put into words like how much this actually meant to me because we don't always get representation in comic books that we can really connect with right like it's one thing to say oh I'm Latino and like there's a Latino character cool like that doesn't mean that you automatically connect but in this book I felt like yes this is a representation of what my experience growing up Latino in the US was a little bit more like it was nice seeing is an outsider to Latino culture to see the look of 
people who actually know in real life and how they look and they, how they act and how they feel to be represented to see people who I know and love be shown and not in that sitcom way where everybody does something ridiculously stereotypical it, it see it's seemed a lot more true to life how I know it and I know as as just a standard European white guy that sometimes we need to see these representations like put in front of us just so we can see how much how how similar everybody is when especially when there are people who don't cross those divides and everything's so scary to them and to see people just be normal people and and live and love and learn and basically a lot of the same ways it, it's, it's really important to put it out there i also think one of the most complicated things about following your latino character journey like your own self character journey in that regard is sort of the constant realization of the the endless duality of latino culture yes we are all the same we are all united by a language we're all incredibly different and we do not all share the same culture and it's sort of one thing for a person who is perhaps Puerto Rican to say to a person who is perhaps Dominican, look at all the same ways we're alike. But it's sort of like another thing if like a Swedish person comes in and is like, oh, yeah, you're the same. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's not it's that's bad. And it's not it's, it's the Swedish chef, basically. And it's not good if they did that either. So, you know, there is a, a sort of nuance. It's more nuanced than that. And I feel like the magic of reptile was in many ways, the experience was kept kind of generic and general to the Latino experience without sacrificing the the personalness right and that's not to say that all cultures have incredibly emotional people they actually don't i found out very late in life that everybody's family doesn't just cry all the time and that's when i found out it's because not everybody is cuban uh, but it turns out that like everybody's not super emotional all the time and that was news to me uh, but you know that was something i felt like the reptile book really captured really well that really it hit a certain magic now i probably as much as i love reptile i gotta be honest perhaps maybe a little bit my marvel latino superhero is gonna stay robbie reyes he's my boy i have my robbie reyes cosplay ready for when we go back to cons i'm so stoked Right. But there was a real sense of who I want to see in Latino representation in this book. How did you guys feel about balancing that idea of a world of Latino cultures all needing to service through one character? I mean, it's an overwhelming notion to put on any character and any creative team. It's unfair to expect any one character to do that. I know from my own personal viewpoint, when we only had North Star. Is the, is he was the queer character. I was like, I am in no way at all like Northstar. I love I love that there's representation of, of queer characters out there. And then, bam, it was Northstar. And he was a jackass. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's fun and everything. But I, I think it's really unfair to, to expect that out of one character. And I know sometimes that's what we have to do. I feel that Reptil really tried its best to be as inclusive as possible for everybody. I don't know if I really see this book as trying to be all-inclusive of like to to represent all latin cultures i think it's really easy for anybody who talks about it well such as we are to maybe kind of impose some of that but i don't really think that was the intent i'm mexican and puerto rican i already
already have a duality of, of Latin <laughs> cultures coming together. And so my experience is always still going to be different from anybody who might just be Mexican, might just be Puerto Rican, or is Cuban, Dominican, whatever it is. I mean, immediately, like, there's no way that any one thing can truly represent uh, someone like me in that sense, right? Because I I'm not one thing. And I think with this book, like, it, it, we're getting, we're really getting a strong representation of Mexican culture with the discussions about the Aztec and that influence in the name of the dinosaur that Bezos' parent discovered. So I, for me, this this book is it's celebrating one piece of Latin culture. And I don't think that it's meant to represent all Latin cultures, but I still think that a variety of people, either from Latin cultures or not, can still enjoy, appreciate, and and celebrate that. And I think that's what the, the book does for me, is it, it's celebrating. It's celebrating that the, the differences and the things that make us similar. I think it's that search for a beautiful individuality that made this book sort of transcendent in a unique way. Now, I'll be honest, as big I am a fan of both the creative team and this title, I did feel that 22 pages was a bit of a disservice to the final issue. There was perhaps more than I felt fit here, but this did follow a recent trend set forward by a number of titles at Marvel, like the recent America Chavez series, another Latino-led series, or the recent Black Knight series, there's been a focus on the initiative to recreate heroes in an age where everybody's keeping score. Now, what do I mean by everybody's keeping score? I'm going to make a, and everyone's shocked as shit, hold on to your dicks, boys, because I'm going to make a Golden Girls reference. But in the early days of Golden Girls, there was no, I'm going to pull that episode up on Netflix. There was no, I have access to that episode on DVD. There was, if that episode hit cultural significance at a hundred episodes, five seasons, and an arguability for cultural importance, that show could enter reruns. And then everybody could know that joke someday, maybe. Which is why so many shows were able to get away with joke steal, and why so many writers were able to get away with reusing jokes. Which is why when things like the writers from The Office would go over to a show like Brooklyn Nine-Nine 50 years ago, you didn't notice that The Office Olympics just became the jibby-jab games. But through the course of the fact that we have access to these things, the transitive property of TV works like that. But it also means that we noticed by the third time we watched it on Lifetime as kids that Blanche changes her How I Lost My Virginity story 50 times. Now, as a 15-year-old, you're pretty focused on having sex. So stuff like that just happens to stick out in your head at a very formative time. But I bring this all up because there was a really dark period of time for comics where the canosity of something didn't matter. And I don't mean that in a way where like, no, I'm a canonista and you got to hit my point and you got to always count every story. No, more like there was no penalty for bad writing because it just got ignored. And I feel that because of that, I have a natural resistance to sort of the open-ended miniseries finale. There is something to me that feels perhaps incomplete about this sense of, well, that was a fun adventure. I wonder what comes next. I do want to know what comes next. Now, all said and done, not jumping the gun in any way, I felt like by the end, I didn't have all of the answers I wanted. But I did have a few I needed. For me, 
I know an understanding of Beto's power, especially in regard to his family, was super essential for me loving these individual three characters of his young family. What answers did you guys feel this issue paid off, and were there some that you found yourself longing for at the end of your 22-page funny book? For for me, I think the, the most important part to think of, and I had to reread the whole mini to, to catch all of the beautiful pieces that were laid out, but at the end when Beto gets control of his power, the first two dinosaurs that he turns into, or the first one is his mother's favorite dinosaur, the one I, I where they go into, you know, how it's in that Techian name. Quetzalcoatl. Quetzalcoatl, thank you. He turns into his mother's favorite dinosaur, which is beautiful when that's the first full dino's transformation, especially recently, that he's been able to transform into and have full control of his power. So it's like a really beautiful moment that that's his mother's favorite dinosaur. And the second smaller one is the one that Julian kept trying to get him to tell him to turn into. So I was like, oh my God, this is so beautifully laid out. Like the whole, everything's there on it. I, I loved that. Absolutely would love to know more of, you know, uh, and I love loved the 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 whole arc of Enrique the the street vendor like that was amazing I, I want to see more of him show up and I also loved Julian being able to through Eva get an item of power and become a hero of his own and being able to not just emotionally uphold his role as a hero but to be able to step in and feel physically able to fight as well I would have loved to see more of a resolution to some of the lingering questions like what happened to that that old guy from issue three that you know he was taking the place of and like what's the real story with the dino queen for me i think what we got in the story or maybe what we may have expected was a reunion with based on his parents and instead i think we were led on a journey of family and that family is important and, and it comes in different variations and while yes it might include your parents but it also can include your cousin your abuelo your your tia and then even people from the community people who uh, just take care of each other and so i think it really touched on the the theme of family which i think is what what I at least would have expected going into it with kind of the premise that was set up. And even though we didn't get the resolution that we, again, may have been led to think that we would get ultimately, we got a richer story of family and a deeper understanding of the character and the lore, right? The the mystery behind where the power comes from. I think sometimes we get left with the these setups at the end of a, of a mini and it could be that maybe there is a plan to continue that story and that, that would be my hope, but I think we know that nothing is guaranteed at this point. So it's almost like we've kept the status quo, but we've enriched the character. And I think that still, that still ends up being a pretty wonderful and successful story. Understanding, knowing, and, and learning to love the character and giving them a, a really firm structure with their family and grounding them. I mean, Beto, to me, feels like he knows more of who he is as well at the end of this. And I think that only allows the character to, to move on to other stories and hopefully continue to grow. I kind of love the fact that he didn't get reunited with his parents because to have his parents be reunited with him would be too much of like a fairy tale comic book ending. And unfortunately in life, you don't always get that. It seemed much more realistic and it really made me feel and see the importance of the other family that he has that has stepped up for his parents and his cousins who are his surrogate siblings. And it just really shows the importance of that support system. And absolutely, yeah. 
Now, I find myself very eager to learn more about the way this family is going to play out in the next few months. We know that we have another story from within the Terry Bloss reptile verse coming up in the next Marvel Voices special, but that doesn't really tell us the future of this title or these characters. I think one of the things that this book gave me was an excitement for the future of these characters characters. And that's really important, especially because I feel as though Reptile was a character we were told to like at one point. He was suddenly created, suddenly on an animated series, suddenly in a book out of nowhere. And for many of us, our favorites languish in third tier titles, if that. Sometimes they don't see publication for months at a time. But I find myself excited for Reptile's part in the upcoming Marvel Universe. We also had the recent appearance from him in the pages of the King and Black Spider-Man. It makes me think that perhaps Reptile is in a position to appear more throughout the Marvel Universe. Dante, how do you feel about the recontextualization of and I mean, I'm possibly going a little too far here, but they kind of played Reptile up in many ways as, you know, the young exciting Latino character and then when it didn't happen, they just sort of dropped him and as a Latino, I think we can agree that we've seen that happen before. Oh look, diversity. Oh, it didn't work. Bye. How do you feel about this open arms chance the Marvel Universe is giving this young character in the way that he represents so many Latino kids that came before him? I mean, I feel great about it. And honestly, I think what we're seeing, and I mean, I can't even tell you how far back this might go, but I think we're seeing a lot of creative coming on who read these characters as well and probably fell in love with them and, and said, hey, why why isn't this character a bigger deal? I want to use them. I want to make them. I want to give them the promise that they deserve. I want I want them to have that chance and their moment in the spotlight so that more people can appreciate them. And I so I it, to me it makes perfect sense. It makes sense in in a day and age when people are paying attention to the diversity that that it, we're being exposed to. And there is a conscious effort to make sure that we're showing a variety of folks and backgrounds, skin colors. I'm excited for it. I <laughs> probably that's probably like one of my standard quotes on the podcast. But I am legitimately excited for this, especially as as a, a person of color uh, who is still pretty white. I mean, and I'm also like, I grew up in America, so I, I'm pretty American, but I still see myself in these characters, you know, because they're, I've always felt that that uh, feeling of other. And so I, I love seeing this and the potential that it has to impact somebody who is younger, who may not have experienced these characters and hasn't had that opportunity to, to say, oh my gosh, someone who speaks, you know, like I do, at least a little bit or like oh yeah in my household we also like speak English and Spanish back and forth like that's so cool I love it and I want more of it I always want more of it Now, Nathan, my question for you is, what was your relationship with Reptile before this series, and how do you see that relationship playing out going forward, having read it? I I had a very loose relationship with Reptile before I came into this series. I I really, in Avengers Academy, never, I really only dropped in to see Danny Moonstar, like, you know, uh, training trauma or whatever that character's name was. And then I was like, peace out. And I was like, oh, Tigra's 
Scarlet and Tigra's in here. Like, let me pop back in. But I, I never really fell in love with the kids like you were supposed to. I always fell in love with the instructors. And that that's who I really followed the book for. So that's who I really focused my attentions on. The King and Black Spider-Man special really brought Reptile to my attention in a way that I was like, oh, man, this character is really, really cool. Like, I want to see more of this character. And this Reptile miniseries made me fall in love not only with him, but like the supporting characters. I, I have to say this is like the first miniseries lately that's really drawn me in as much to the main character as the supporting characters who are so beautifully done and so fleshed out like his entire family not just my favorite not just my baby boy julian but like eva and, and the grandpa and you know and aunt like everybody really has drawn like a place in my heart and it's it's amazing how that's happened and i want to want to see more of this family and i want to see more of the story continue but especially enrique right oh okay yes okay i mean you know yeah oh, the like the hottest daddy like side character like oh my god yes i i would love for him to feed me his tacos volcanas mm, yes please. i love everything that just happened so... <laughs> I, mean, I in all fairness like every time i see enrique i'm just like oh arturo's in a comic book how wonderful pretty much Yep, that is the exact thing that happens. Yep. Yep. Oh, he does have a mustache too, like Arturo. Okay. Yeah. Like, if Arturo doesn't cosplay as Enrique, like, it's such a missed opportunity. Just oh, saying. it's such a Because he could also double it as a Bob's Burgers cosplay. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I can't. I can't even. I'm super delighted right now. So, now, let me ask you guys. Where do you hope to see Beto a year from now? I wouldn't want to see him on a team book as much because we would lose this amazing supporting cast of characters. I, I would love for enough sales for a solo series to go on and continue with the same t amazing team because not only Terry Blast on the writing but like the art and the colors and the lettering it all works so well together like I just want to see it continue dream series is I love like maybe like trio series of Reptile and his cousins so like that would be the dream series it would be great to see more of Reptile for sure I mean at the very least I want to see Reptile in comics a year from now I don't want it to be a one and done and we move on again I feel like the character has a lot to give and I think that I mean for me when I read this I sometimes you can really tell that a creative team you know cares and loves the characters that they're they're writing and drawing and this is one of those cases I get a strong feeling of that and so I hope that I mean I assume Terry has lots of plans and I hope that Marvel gives him the opportunity to enact those plans because I don't think that Terry is done with this character and you know, I really hope that's the case, but I maybe hope for it in a way that's different than some of the other things I've heard suggested. I think that with Champions ending and a big focus on the Young Avengers and Runaways ending, there's a lot of opportunity to maybe reform the power structure of the Marvel Universe kids rung. I'm not saying shake stuff up so that it's unrecognizable, but perhaps it's time that we can have two different sets of Young Avengers because there's really two different sets of Young Avengers. There's the classic Heinberg Chang Avengers as well as the updated Gillen McKelvey Young Avengers. So I think I would love to see Reptile on some sort of Young Allies team that forms out of the loss of so many other teams. Now, I'll be honest, while this was definitely not my first Terry Bloss comic, 
it was my first comic for a number of these creatives. And there was something that I thought was unique about this story, much in the same way we acknowledge that one of our favorite things about America Chavez made in the USA one through five was that the amount of Latina hair that was like actually like different texture Latina hair was amazing on every level. I actually was blown away by how everybody looked Latino in this book. It was surreal. I'm so used to white faces colored kind of orange and being told we're at El Barrio, you know, on the other side of town by where there are still railroads for the tracks. So I was, you know, and that's sort of like Dan- Daniel Acuna kind of way, you know what I mean? Like, so I was really blown away by the individuality of the expression of unique Latin features in each of the characters. So few of these characters had established identities prior to this series. So that really put all of the heavy lifting on Enid Balam's pen to do all of the creation outside of Reptil. And with the amount of unique storytelling that Terry put into this story, that wasn't an easy feat for, as far as I know, a creative team that has never worked for this editing house before. How did you guys feel about the individuality of the art? I don't think this looked like any other Marvel book on the stands. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, honestly, you hit the nail right on the head with this one. It's really easy to kind of go, oh, who is that character supposed to be? Like, no, with this, it's it's super distinct. You can tell from the body language, the face. These are fully fleshed out characters, individuals. You can see that so clearly. And yeah, even, even in these crowded scenes, like you get a strong sense of we're in a neighborhood where there is definitely more people of color. I think that, again, there was a certain amount of care brought to this book. And I think that's another example of where that care was really shown. The most amazing thing about the difference in the, in the art style for this book to me was it felt like like a cross in the best way between the some of the more care and experimental things you can do in a more indie book with a big Marvel book. So you had like the big expansive hero fight, but you were able to see a lot more of the slice of life pieces too. If, if that makes sense what I'm saying on that, when you say like, oh, it's not like it was like an indie book. I mean it in the best way. It took all of the best parts that we love out of independent comics and merged it with the best part of superhero comics. I think one of the things that most defines this title for me as I look back on the five issues of Reptile is that at the end of the day, this book was about an underdog. And the fact that the book came out at all, being by so many independent artists, really resounded with the book's can-do spirit. I really hope Marvel continues to make such brave choices as to put the voices of the book in charge of the book like this going forward. Do you guys have any final thoughts as we take a look back on four issues starring one of the most unlikely heroes for the Marvel Universe to pull back out of obscurity, but one of the heroes we're most grateful for? It's a real testament to the way that the teams all come together, that the hero of the story, even though sometimes I would get distracted by the, the hot street vendor or like my precious baby Julian, who like nobody had ever ever about her heart but like the main story the main character really went on a real heart-wrenching journey of, of not only like acceptance of his powers but you know discovery as to who he was as a character and i think it really turned out a lot better and the character turned out stronger because of this miniseries unlike some of the other re-envisionings that have happened lately I, this character really came out stronger and more realized 
I'm really happy that we we did get this book. As much as I wish that it would continue forever and ever, it just it felt like such a solid story. Sometimes it's hard to really like put into words how important uh, representation is uh, for for different folks, and even for myself. I I really did see so much of of my little bits of my history growing up in the book, and getting getting even a little bit of that in in Marvel comic and these these characters that I've grown to love like it's it always going to mean so much to me and I think it's important to realize regardless of how many sales a book has how marketable and profitable you know characters are like these characters still have a lot of value and I hope that we continue to see more books like this more chances taken on these characters that don't have as much of a fleshed out story or didn't weren't given as much of a chance previously I want to continue to see these these smaller characters given their moment to shine with uh, with creative teams who are excited to do that. I want more of this. So I'm hoping that this is the trend that we're continuing to see, especially with Marvel, is that they will allow more people to do these great little projects.